They lived as if Jesus was actually the king. Well, good morning, as ever. Uh, I am grateful to stand in the same pulpit as John Rogers. I'm grateful that I get to open the same word of God with you that he does, to be empowered by the same spirit of God who empowers him, to be surrounded by the same great cloud of witnesses as he is, usually on the right side, of course, for Pastor John, to attempt the same task of rightly dividing the word of truth as he does. So please pray for me to that end. But the video that you've just seen, which is produced by the Bible Project, a wonderful resource to which I give my very highest recommendation, it gave you the context in which we're going to find our historical narrative this morning. So turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 16, the 16th chapter of Acts, where we will hunker down in verses 25 through 34. And as you turn there, let me tie the context that you've just been given in the video to our text this morning. See, here in Acts 16, we find Paul and Silas in the midst of his missionary journeys that were mentioned in the film, specifically his second missionary journey. And we also join him, them, Paul and Silas, in prison, in chains. You see, in the preceding passage, Paul, in the power of the Holy Spirit, has rebuked the demon that had possessed and tormented a slave girl who had been exploited for a long time by her owners because of her ability through the demonic power to be a medium, a divining medium, a future teller, a prognosticator. Rebuking this demon and setting this girl free did two things. First, it cost these slavers a source of income. But secondly, it reduced the value that they found in her exploitation and thus protected her because there was nothing that they could really force her to do for them anymore. And nevertheless, even in light of those two things, these men who'd lost their income stream proceed to whip up the crowds against Paul and Silas. You can see this in the paragraph right above where we're going to spend the majority of our time. Look up at verse 19. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews. Note this is also a racially motivated attack. And they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or to practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders for them to be beaten with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So not only are they in prison, but they are bloodied and beaten. And they're in the inner prison, which was reserved for the vilest offender, the most secure part as well. And they're immobilized in stocks, which would have been great boards that your legs would be chained and fastened into that would keep your legs so spread apart you couldn't move if you tried. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to keep in mind as we transition to reading the first few verses of our text, what you've just heard. 
that they're not only in prison, they're bloodied and beaten, and they're in the inner prison, and also immobilized in stocks. And I want you to ask yourself this question. What must be true about Jesus if in light of all that, everything that they've experienced, we find Paul and Silas engaged in the activities that we find them engaged in in our passage that we're about to read? What must be true about King Jesus if they can have all that happen to them and we find them doing what they're doing in our passage? What are they doing? Let's see it. We're going to jump in together. Verse 25 of Acts 16. This is our text. About midnight. That's the title of our message this morning. Midnight hymns in a Philippian jail cell. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that even the foundations of the prison were shaking. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were simply loosed. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to take his own life, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we're all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out of the prison and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your whole household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and they were baptized at once, he and his family. Then he brought them up into his house and placed food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Well, the first thing that we see in this text as we walk through it is an emancipation, a freeing. When someone's emancipated, they're set free. It's a freeing, and it comes through prayer and praise that are poured out in the Savior's power. Prayer and praise poured out in the Savior's power leads to freeing emancipation. And as we start this text, though, we're given another detail, which don't you know, I think is just a further confirmation of how reliable scripture is. It says at midnight, it's midnight. And I can just see, I mean, Luke includes, why include this detail? Other than he goes to the source and says, hey, what happened? And Paul's like, well, I'll tell you what happened at midnight. We yada, yada, yada. And, okay, midnight. Let me get that down. Just a detail that's meant to add to the reliability of this narrative. But it's midnight. And not only are they in the worst of conditions then, and in the worst of locations, of course, and in the worst of condition themselves, but it's the darkest and most hopeless time of the night. You see, night is commonly seen in Scripture as a trying and difficult time. It's a time of sorrow and struggle and trial and tribulation. Just give you one example from Psalms 30, verse 5. His anger is but for a moment, but his, faith, his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night. And the word that's used there is the, the deepest part of night. But joy comes in the morning. So Paul and Silas respond... No, nah, it's all good. We'll just go ahead and have the joy right now. Thank you. Right here in the midst of all this weeping and struggle and trial, we'll just go ahead and have the joy. Charles Spurgeon said this, any fool can sing in the day. It's easy to sing when we can read the notes by daylight, but the skillful spiritual singer 
is he who can sing when there's not a ray of light to read by. Songs in the night come only from God, and they are not in the power of men. Let's break the rest of this first part down into two categories. First, we're going to see this. Paul and Silas' response to their suffering. You can see it in the text right there. Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. So what was the response of Paul and Silas to their suffering in the name of Jesus? It was prayer and praise. Let's focus on each of those for just a second. Take prayer. Prayer is the common denominator of virtually every equation in which God pours out his power in the book of Acts. It's everywhere in the book of Acts. Anytime you find God's power poured out, look around it, you'll find prayer. I'll give you just an example. You're going to see a slide full of texts here in just a second. And I'm not going to focus on all of them, but every single one of these is an example where you see in the text of Acts and they were praying together and behold, this crazy, awesome thing happened. Or the believers were together and they had everything and they prayed and then this happened. Every single one of these is an instance in which prayer preceded the Lord's pouring out of his power. I'll give you just three examples from this. Acts 1.14. Jesus has ascended and all of his followers are standing around looking at each other like, what do we do? What do they do? They come together and they pray. Acts 1.14. All these were with one accord devoting themselves to prayer. And thus the church is begun. Acts 4.31. Before the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost... And when they had prayed, the place in which they gathered was shaken. Or Acts 9.40, before the raising of Tabitha. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and he prayed. And turning to the body, he said, to the body. She's not there anymore. Turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And right before, what happened? Prayer. Let me finish this little list with Acts 21. Paul is soon to depart to Jerusalem from his last stop. He knows what awaits him there. We read in verse 5, When our days were ended and we departed and went on our journey, they all, all the people who had gathered with them at that time, their wives and children together with them, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed. They had a little beach prayer sesh. And when they arrive where they're going, they're greeted by brothers who take them to a house. And a prophet by the name of Agabus comes and he takes Paul's belt off and puts it on himself and binds his ankles with it. And he says, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will do to the man who owns this belt. Saying, Paul, they're going to take you, they're going to bind you. And so everyone weeps. And raises up their voices and begs him not to go. Paul, don't go. Why would you go? You see what's going to happen to you. And remember, having just prayed on the beach before the journey, here's Paul's response. What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. How arrogant or ignorant either do I have to be to suppose that God is going to do any of the incredible things I'd love to see him do in my life, in the life of my family, in the life of this community, in the life of our church, in these schools. How arrogant or ignorant do I have to be to suppose that God will pour out his power in any of those places or situations if I'm not praying for him to do it? 
to the question, how, we, how can we see a movement of God in this church, in my family, in our schools, in this community, in this nation, which needs it sorely? How will we see a movement? Acts answers plainly but forcefully. You will when you pray. When you get down on your knees and you pray. And not before. But they aren't just praying, they're also praising. That's the second part. We see a similar response to mistreatment and persecution all the way back in Acts 5.41. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the sake of the name. See, there's just something about praise in the midst of suffering, isn't there? I mean, there's just something about when somebody is absolutely going through it. They've lost a loved one, a spouse. They've gotten a cancer diagnosis. They've lost their job. Everything is going wrong in their life. And you hear that person praise. Just lift up their voice and praise. Suffering is like seasoning to praise. You get a dish that you cook, and when you cook it, if, unless you add whatever that little special sauce or special seasoning is, it's kind of, but when you add it, it's like, That's what suffering is like to praise. It seasons praise. You see, we're told that the other prisoners were looking and listening to them. Why? Why? It was by no means expected or required of them. It's not like the guards came through and said, behold, they singeth. Stop everything and listen. My guess is they're all at the doors of their cell Ears stuck through the bars and they're thinking, what do these guys have that I don't? Who do these guys have that I don't? John Piper has preached and written extensively on this exact subject. You might say he's made a mission of it. And I want to share some of his words with you. There's no other way, Pastor Piper says, that the world is going to see the supreme glory of Christ today except that we break free from the Disneylandification of American Christianity and begin to live lifestyles of missionary sacrifice that looks to the world like our treasure really is in heaven and not here on earth. It's the only way. The prosperity gospel, which says if you believe in Jesus, you'll get health and wealth and prosperity. The prosperity gospel will not make anybody praise Jesus. It will make people praise prosperity. Of course I'll have a Jesus who will give me a car. Who wouldn't want a Jesus who will give me health or a car or a fine marriage, whatever the case may be? I'll take your Jesus if the payoff is right. That's not the way that you're going to win your campuses, college students, high school students, middle school students, adults, your workplaces, dressing the coolest, driving the coolest, typing on the coolest. It's not going to get any praise for the suffering Christ, but praise in the midst of trial and tribulation, when things don't go your way, when everything is off its kilter, that'll do it. And it's going to come, Dr. Piper says. Don't think it's strange when it comes. That's James 1, 1 through 7. It's the price. He paid his life for our salvation. So we join him in suffering to display the nature of his suffering. How are they going to see how satisfying Jesus is in us if we look like it's the computer toy, the career, the boyfriend or the girlfriend, the travel, the sports award that is really satisfying? And not Christ. Because hear me, the prisoners aren't the only ones listening. Jesus is. Jesus is listening and he's prepared and able to do something about it. 
And what's the Savior's response to their choice to pray and praise? That's the second part. We saw Paul and Silas's response to suffering. What is the suffering Savior's response to Paul and Silas? Verse 26, suddenly there was a great earthquake such that the foundations of even the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. So his response to the kind of praying and praising, a praying and praising in the midst of suffering is to break every chain and bring the whole prison down. When Jesus revealed himself in glory to the same prisoner in this passage, Paul, back when Paul was still out, Saul and persecuting Christians and having them jailed or killed, he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus says that when we're persecuted in his name, it isn't really us that's being persecuted. He condescends in his glory to be identified with us in our suffering. And the power of Jesus can be seen in this, that it showed this truth. Paul wasn't the real prisoner here all along. The jailer was. He just didn't know it yet. And Paul was no mere prisoner anyway. He was a temporarily detained emissary of the Most High God. And we'll see that as we move forward in the text when we see that Paul was led by the Spirit to stay and sacrifice on behalf of this jailer. So that's the emancipation. That's the freeing through the prayer and praise of God's people in his power. But God is going to speak through more than an earthquake. He's actually going to speak through something that's greater than an earthquake. He's going to speak through his word. In our next section, we'll see not emancipation, but a different sort of spiritual evangelization, a sharing of the gospel. Only the Jesus, only Jesus, only our Jesus can make a prison into a pulpit. Let's see it. Verse 27. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to take his own life to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, don't harm yourself. We're all here. So the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he falls down before Paul and Silas and he brought them out and he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your whole household. And then verse 32, they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. So Paul and Silas do, do two simple, it's so simple, but so profound, the two things that they do. Amidst the rubble and the detritus of what to moments ago had been their whole existence, their whole existence had been four walls and a prison door. And now that's just laying on the ground all around them. And they do two things. They stay and they sacrifice. And that had an impact on the possibility and the, the success of their evangelism. Let's look at why it's so important that they stayed. Two major consequences of their staying. First... The fact that they stayed prevented the jailer from killing himself. We know from Acts 12, 19 and 27, 42 and many other historical sources that if a Roman guard lost track of their charge, their life was forfeit to the empire. So rather than face the shame and the public condemnation of public execution, the guard made haste to just take his own life and get it over with. But Jesus and therefore Paul and Silas had other ideas. They stayed you know, there may be somebody in your life, even right now, that merely by staying with them in their life and in their circumstances and in their depression and in their hopelessness, and merely by just remaining with them as the presence of Christ in their life, they're going to see days and months and years that they might not ever have seen otherwise. Just a thought. Furthermore, there might be someone in your life that you've all but given up on. 
you believe that you've done all you can. They'll just never believe. There's no hope for her, for him. Follow the example of Paul here and stay. Because what if broken chains are just around the corner? What if broken chains are just after the next hymn? So it prevented him from taking his own life. But secondly, staying presented Paul and Silas with the opportunity to share Jesus with the jailer. See, the jailer has no doubts about what's just happened. And I don't know how, because, I mean, clearly he had been sleeping. It said he woke up. So perhaps he'd heard or heard about what the freed slave girl was saying back in verse 17. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Perhaps it was made clear to him by the Spirit. But whatever the reason, he makes a beeline, the text reads, rushed in to the cell of Paul and Silas and fell at their feet, prostrate. And here we come to the sacrifice. That was the staying. This is the sacrifice. Verse 29 and 30. The jailer called for the lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So let's look at this sacrifice from two different angles. Think about this sacrifice from two different angles. First, from the jailer's side. What did the jailer have to sacrifice? His pride. His pride. Catch this. The jailer who had just kept them under lock and key, the jailer falls at the feet of the men who moments ago, as accused rebellion leaders against Rome, had been less than human life to him. They would have been regarded as rats to be exterminated. I love this from the Believer's Bible Commentary. He cried, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And this question must precede any and every genuine case of conversion. A man must know he's lost before he can be saved. It's premature to tell a man how to be saved until he can first say from his heart, I'm lost and I truly deserve hell. See, the jailer must sacrifice his pride, something we all must sacrifice to call upon the name of Jesus. I mean, think for a moment as well, by the way, that this guy even knows what to ask in the first place. How does he know to say, what must I do to be saved? How and by whom? How does he know even to phrase it that way? What would seem as though the Spirit's been at work in this man's life for quite some time, whether through the witness of God-fearing Jews in the area or in a manner similar to the Ethiopian eunuch or Cornelius the devout, to whom God sent Andrew and Peter. But I'll tell you what that should do. It should embolden us. That should embolden us in our evangelism. Because what if there are many people in your life or in your orbit at work or at school or wherever it is you do your thing in whom the Spirit is already at work, who they, these people have been doused, drenched in holy fuel by the Holy Spirit, and they're just waiting on you to come by and spark a match. What about Paul's sacrifice? That was the jailer's sacrifice. Here's the other point of view Paul's sacrifice. Paul had to sacrifice vengeance, revenge. Imagine Paul's response here is other than what it is. Imagine he responds this way. The guy says, sirs, what must we do to be saved? And Paul says, my, how the tables have turned. Weren't you just slapping cuffs on me a minute ago? Silas, help me out. Wasn't, I mean, I think I distinctly remember all the times that this homeboy slammed the iron gate in our faces. How can you be saved? Good luck finding that out. But that's not Paul's response. 
No, instead he shares the gospel with this man. Why? Because Paul was this man. Paul was this man. Paul, though, wasn't in the rubble of a prison. He was on the road to Damascus. He wasn't a prison guard. He was someone who filled the prisons with Christians. Paul didn't have chains that fell off. He had scales that fell away from his eyes that had been put there after he gazed upon the beauty of the risen Lord Jesus. And that same Lord Jesus could have knocked them all to the ground like he did in that passage on the road to Damascus. And then said to them from this incredibly bright light, my, how the tables have turned. Old Saul, my guy, I know what you've been out here doing in these streets. What's up now? I bet you wish I would send somebody to give you your sight back and share the gospel with you and baptize you. But the mercy and the sacrifice that Saul received are the same mercy and sacrifice that Paul gives to others. And don't miss the method and the material of his evangelism. How does Paul evangelize? How does he share the gospel with other people? Get ready for the, the, the extreme depth and profundity of these two statements. The method was to plainly state the material. And the material is the word of God. Evangelism doesn't have to be any harder or more complex than that. In fact, it seldom should be. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what his word says about him. This is, this, is what, this is Jesus' preferred method. If you look at the road to Emmaus back in Luke 24, same, written by the same author, by the way, Luke who wrote Acts wrote the gospel of Luke. Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer all these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And by the way, if you fast forward in that account, do you know when he's finally revealed to them? During prayer. During prayer. So though we don't need to get any more complex with this in our evangelism, we have to be at least this complex. Because Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And, and I just want to share it with you from, from my heart, something that I've seen that's kind of infiltrating Christianity right now is this cheap evangelism, which relies on a, a kind of easy beliefism. Just believe. And that's its whole method. And its cheapness lies in its neglecting to call people to the full measure of God's word. In other words, it's verse 31, believe in Jesus without verse 32. And he spoke to them the word of the Lord. But the method isn't the only problem, it's the material as well. For instead of God's word, it relies on emotional manipulation, herd mentality, and a collection of stories and euphemisms that are stitched together with verses that are taken out of context. This is what one of my seminary professors calls drunk preaching. And it's when a preacher wanders around his own stories and experiences and illustrations until he finds a verse somewhere in scripture that he can lean on for a few minutes. And then having leaned on that for a moment or two, he goes off into his stories and his whatnot again until he finds another verse to lean against. And that beloved church is not preaching. That's self-promotion cloaked in storytelling and dipped in false assurance. And it's not going to save anybody. 
And we want no part of that. Let us prefer the method and the material of both the Lord Jesus and his servant Paul that we see in this passage. And what is the word of the Lord that Paul mentions? I'll give it to you very succinctly in 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, Paul says, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand and by which you are actually being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Verse 3, for I delivered... To you, as of first importance, what I also received, this, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. See, Jesus lived the life that we could not in our sin live, and he died for us the death that we should have died, because that's the penalty for sin, and he was resurrected and conquered death, giving us access to resurrection life. It's the gospel. Every word of it. God's word. So there we have it. Evangelism, which is staying and sacrificing in the Savior's provision. And now that we've seen the the freeing, the emancipation, and what sets free, the evangelization, let's close with a little bit of ecclesia. Don't worry, I'll define that word. Look at verse 33 and 34. He took them that same hour that night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all of his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So what is this word that I'm using? What's ekklesia? It's a Greek word that is the word that's most often translated in the New Testament and the Old Testament in the Greek Septuagint. But the the word that's almost always used for church. The ekklesia is the church. And we see here in this text, the early markings and the early makings of the church. Consider what this new convert, he's not even been a convert for an hour. The text tells us that it was at the same hour that he did these things. So this guy's been a believer for less than an hour, and he's going to give us a complete picture of the church. Let's see it, because it can be summed up in four words, work, witness, welcome, and worship. And those four things, by the way, are perfectly bound up in connect, grow, and serve. It's just that two of those words go up into one of ours. It simplifies it a little bit. First, let's see the work. Verse 33. He took them that same hour and he washed their wounds. So first, the jailer works on behalf of his brothers. And he wastes no time in doing so. You see, the same hands... The same hands that once roughly clamped the chains and the stocks... On the legs of Paul and Silas, now softly tend those wounds and, and provides care for those wounds. The same hands. The gospel makes felons into friends. It makes adversaries into amigos. The jailer models the church in his work for his brothers, but also in his witness. Second part of verse 33, and he was baptized at once. He and all his family. So his witness is his public baptism that would have been on display for all to see. Wrap your minds around this fact. This is nuts, church. That the the water that this jailer uses to tend the wounds of the guys that he had given wounds to is in all likelihood the same water that he got baptized in. Got no reason to think otherwise. So when we're baptized here at Ridgeview and when we receive the Lord's Supper together, we're bearing witness. John is always very clear in saying that, that we're bearing witness to the life, death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. 
And so when we do so, we join across all history, all the way down through history, to a humble jailer whose whole world got turned upside down one midnight in a Philippian jail. See, only the gospel can take water fit for the washing of wounds and make it water fit for the washing of sins. And this is a model to us, church, this witness of baptism. So there's works and witness, and then he shows them welcome. Verse 34, he brought them up into his house and set food before them. So if you thought it was ironic that he should be baptized in the water that was used to, to wash their wounds, then get a load of this. The same jailer who had just confined these messengers of God into the opposite of a home, that's prison, now finds himself welcoming those same prisoners into his house. I mean, that's the power of God, church. That's the power of the gospel. The gospel can make a prison into a parking space and a warden's crew into a welcome committee. Work, witness, welcome, and finally worship. He rejoiced along with his entire household that he believed in God. And the text ends on the note that we must sound along with this jailer and alongside his former charges when they were still in the prison cell, that of worship. Because only the gospel can make a man do the very thing that he's just imprisoned other men for doing. Only the gospel can turn an offense into an offering. And there we have it. Emancipation, a setting free. Prayer and praise in the, in the freedom of the Savior's power to evangelize, to share that gospel, staying and sacrificing for the people in our lives, the people in our orbit for the gospel because the Savior has provided for us to do so. And finally, ecclesia, church, working and witnessing and welcoming and worshiping as a church of former hostiles because such we were. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. While we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we've been made whole and we've been made into a family in the Savior's presence. And that's church. And it all started with midnight hymns in a Philippian jail cell. What a God we serve. What a Savior. What a gospel we have. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that as I look into the faces of these, my brothers and sisters, I see all of the things in this text on display. I see the faces of people who were once enslaved to either addiction or sin or any number of other things, Lord, and I get to stand in their presence. I myself was enslaved in that same way, and now we get to stand together and we get to pray and praise together. What a gift. Lord, I see faces who are the result of Ridgeview members rising to this high calling of evangelism and sharing the gospel with their neighbors, their co-workers, inviting to church. And we have people in this fellowship who are a result of that second step. And Lord, I'm thankful that I serve at a church that connects and grows and serves. Three things that accomplish all of working and worshiping and welcoming and witnessing. And I see the results of those efforts in this congregation as well. That's the beauty, Lord Jesus, of the gospel that breaks down barriers. Barriers that look like prison walls and barriers that look like other things that are in our life, Lord, that temporarily keep us from you as you pursue 
us. Lord, I think about this text and I think about the sacrifice, the staying in the sacrifice. And I'm reminded of the veterans who stood, who, who stood in the gap and stayed in the gap and who sacrificed for us and for their fellow countrymen, countrywomen. There's beauty, Lord, in that and a testimony in that. So I'm thankful, Lord, for these people. If there is anyone here this morning, Lord Jesus, who has not responded to your gospel in the same way that this Philippian jailer did, by just simply saying, what must I do to be saved? Lord, I pray that this morning would be the morning as we stand together and spend a few moments in a time of invitation. If you'll stand with me, we're going to have a short time of invitation together as Jennifer strums away up here. We're not going to tarry long, but this is a time for you to respond in whatever way God leads you to do so. This altar's open. You can come and pray. You can come and join the church. You can come and ask about salvation. You can come and ask about baptism, that public witness that we just talked about in the text. Whatever it is, however God's leading you to respond, would you do so now? And as you're in your pew, by the way, we can, we can pray for Pastor John, who's teaching and preaching this morning over at Circle C. There are many in our congregation who are, are sick. We've had some deaths recently, some very intimately tied to our church in the past and in the present. Pray for our fellow brothers and sisters. God would bring healing and would care for them. Wait just a moment longer. Amen.